You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Welcome to T-Minus Deep Space from N2K Networks. I'm Maria Varmazis, host of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast. Deep Space includes extended interviews and bonus content for a deeper look into some of the topics that we cover on our daily program. Our guest this week is retired U.S. Navy Commander Dr. John Klein. Now, John is a senior fellow and strategist with Delta Solutions and Strategies, and he's an instructor on space policy and strategy. He's recently released a new book called Fight for the Final Frontier, Irregular Warfare in Space, which is available now from all good retailers. I'm John Patsy Klein. Uh, I teach space policy and strategy courses at a few universities in the Washington, D.C. area. I like to work on space policy and strategy in my day job and then also at night teaching. And then I like to write the occasional book on the same subject. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you and to speak with you about your latest book, The Fight for the Final Frontier, Irregular Warfare in Space. Um, aside from me being a Trekkie and going, I love the little final frontier call. In there. Can we start with what we mean by irregular warfare in space? Great. I mean, it's probably... The term is thrown around a lot, but probably very misunderstood. But I'll give you the, the definition that I use in the book. So irregular warfare is apart from major conventional wars against an enemy who takes a similar approach. Now, so basically, you, you know, your your audience may kind of be kind of rolling their eyes. Okay, say, hey, Pat, so you just defined irregular warfare as the opposite of regular warfare. And that is that is okay. We do that all the time in uh, strategic studies. We have the direct and indirect approach. We have symmetric and asymmetrical. So irregular warfare only has meaning in the context of uh, regular warfare. But what's important to understand is irregular warfare is not an irregular occurrence. It, it happens all the time, and most conflicts are either below the threshold of major uh, conventional conflicts or have elements of both regular and irregular. We see that throughout history. So again, it's, it's not a special occurrence, but you know, it, it's important to realize where it fits in the hierarchy and what we're talking about. So these actions that are below the threshold of armed conflict can be 
coercive. They can be competition. You know, the U.S. Uh, jargon, we kind of call it gray zone operations sometimes. Like, because we, we like to bifurcate. We have peace or we have conflict, right? Well, no, no, there's a lot of stuff in between. So, in different domains can be in different ranges of that competition continuum too. Putting on my old cyber hat, I can probably imagine a little bit what we mean by irregular warfare, especially if it comes to cyber in space. But what are we talking about when we talk about these kinds of tactics? What are we looking at? So thanks for teeing up the, the cyber space domain too. So so again, going back to the definition, it's below the threshold major force-on-force force action. So let's look to current events. Let's look to Ukraine. So tying in that cyber, we had cyber attacks against the company Viasat ahead of the Ukrainian invasion. We have jamming of radio frequency spectra, so of communication satellites. We have ongoing lasing of uh, electrical optical sensors on satellites. We have concerns with proximity operations of satellites getting close to each other. What does that mean? Are you trying to convey some message? But what's fascinating is that the cyberspace domain and the space domain are kind of intertwined. So sometimes cyber actions or cyber warfare could be considered space warfare, too, because at times they are kind of interspersed or intermingled. But, you know, drawing upon the cyberspace domain, you know, they're dealing with this already. I mean, there's, there's cyber attacks going on all the time. So you could say they're, you know, nobody's dying, right? It's not a force on force. So you could say based on that definition, that irregular warfare or the competition is relevant there too. Mm. So, I mean, backing out a little bit, given the current events, certainly a lot of, there's been a lot of interest about, especially with what happened with Viasat and Ukraine. Um, I'm curious, was that, did that happen when you were already writing this book or was there sort of a broader earlier reason where you're like, I need to write this book? This uh, effort's been about over two years in the making. It's amazing how, what a long process it is. So I've been writing on space warfare and strategy for 20 years now. So I started off kind of using a maritime analogy. Hey, isn't space kind of like uh, the seas and lines of communication? And, and then I kind of expanded that out from just a domain analogy, going back to the enduring cla- uh, classics like uh, Thucydides, Clausewitz, Sun Tzu, Mao, uh, some other strategists that I wrote about it in my second book. But what kind of took me back is like what we saw going on was not really was not armed conflict in a conventional sense. It wasn't warfare. And I tried to reconcile, well, we have over 40 or 50 years of experience in the space domain. There's stuff going on. What is it? I mean, if I can't look to On War by Clausewitz or one of these other seminal works, what is helpful? So instead of a domain analogy, I said, well, I was reading a friend of mine's book, uh, B.J. Armstrong, but wrote basically about the history of irregular warfare in the early U.S. Navy. And he gets to the last chapter, and I said, well, good grief, that's you know, considering it as a mode of warfare vice analogies to the air domain or the sea domain, you know, maybe we should consider what's going on as irregular. So it's below the threshold. And we there's actually some really good literature on irregular warfare. The United States, we like to forget stuff rather quickly. Uh, so we're kind of doing the dump on Iraq and Afghanistan. We had relearned all that stuff. And now we're now we're back to strategic competition with rivals and who needs that other stuff. But you know, it's it's not going to be an either or. It's not, you know, it, we're going to have elements of regular and irregular working together. So it's not, I'm, my book isn't saying it's all irregular warfare. Forget about the 
the major force on force because that's still a concern. To generalize your question, the answer is we need for strategies to be practical. And if I'm presenting a strategy that's more for, you know, major conflict in space, you know, maybe there's a better approach. We'll be right back. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So you've been studying war in space for decades. I mean, I hate to ask the very basic question, but like trends, what is changing? Yeah, talk about summarizing your career in one question. <laughs> I mean, I, you want to take a stab at that? <laughs> well, so what's changed since I started writing? So I call myself a space strategist. I get paid money to be a space strategist. That Those jobs did not exist 20 years ago. Uh, and... And when I started writing, you know, through domain analogies, you know, it was a, my first article was called Corbett in Orbit after Sir Julian Corbett and using his maritime framework. There was only like five of us that would write about these things. And it was at the time there was kind of a giggle factor. Ah, oh, they're talking about space warfare, Star Trek, Star Wars, whatever like that. But it's, nobody's joking really that much anymore. So we're, we're, you know, more, there's more space actors, there's more people interested in space. We're going to the moon. There's uh, interest in uh, celestial resources such as water ice on the South Pole of the moon. India had a successful rover. You know, technology is kind of catching up. Satellites are much more maneuverable now. So, uh, you know, and the definition of what a space weapon is is still to this day kind of ambiguous because the dual use technologies and the questions about knowing intent. One of the big things is just the role of the commercial sector. 
So the U.S. and Western liberal democracies look to their commercial companies for technological innovation and the like. But, you know, from a space warfare perspective and space strategy perspective, you know, the role of commercial companies is proxy war. That is is ripe for the taking. So, you know, again, looking into Ukraine, uh, we had SpaceX's Starlink constellation providing services to the Ukrainian military. Putin says, I consider SpaceX to be an extension of the United States. And whether he goes after Starlink will probably be a political decision. Vice, you know, are they really providing the services and stuff like that? But you know, the idea of proxies and proxy war for space—that that is uh, definitely new. There's other concerns, like um, in the book, I talk about lawfare, the inter, you know, distorting international legal regimes for advantage. Uh, but there's concerns there on arms control agreements. When we go to the moon, how much? You know, you can't claim sovereignty according to the Outer Space Treaty, but the Artemis Accords, we are okay with establishing safety zones. So what is a safety zone? How is that communicated? Are you establishing a de facto keep-out zone? Are we bypassing the whole sovereignty thing? There's just, there's so much there, but uh, I'm excited. You know, there's so much interest in in space right now, whether it's the moon or, you know, going to Mars. So I I think the, the book is important for that to put things in historical context. When I have conversations with people who have very little understanding of what's going on in space, I think there are a lot of misunderstandings from the general public about what's going on in space in terms of what threats are, potentially. Um, I'm curious what experience you've heard in terms of misconceptions, maybe even from within the space community, so to speak, and and without. Yeah, so there's a lot of misunderstanding and honestly, sometimes the national security space community makes is at fault in that because we classify a lot of the threats and a lot of uh, the goings on in space. The civil space, you know, NASA and uh, the civil agencies of other countries, those are relatively public. But you know, we we know we have interests in space. We know you know space has been militarized since the beginning of the space age. We've we've always had military capabilities, whether it's satellite communications. We've you know, early in the Cold War, we used uh, satellites for Earth observation for treaty compliance on the nukes and counting bombers and the like. So, you know, space has always uh, been relevant with respect to that. But, you know, what is what is a threat and what we're seeing? There's some really good literature. I refer to uh, Secure World Foundation and uh, CSIS put out a, a nice threat report. So I draw upon that. But, you know, we have like I alluded to before, there's ongoing cyber attacks, jamming, lazing, and concerns with proximity operations. We know the U.S. has competitors and rivals, and sometimes our national interests will not align. I think we see that play out terrestrially uh, whenever there's a Another agreement brought up before the United Nations, we have the usual suspects that block U.S. and its allies' uh, efforts to make uh, space more peaceful and sustainable and secure. So th- those are the concerns. Are we seeing an all-out war in space? No, no. Thankfully, we're not, and hopefully we'll never get there. But we are seeing elements below that threshold of competition, potential coercion. Um, so hopefully that helped. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to shift gears entirely to something that you mentioned earlier that I just thought was fascinating. And you mentioned looking to the past for guidance on uh, irregular warfare in space. And I was wondering if you have any examples you wanted to mention, because you did mention Thucydides. It's been at least 20 years since I've read Thucydides. So, um, but anyway, uh, I just was curious, if, looking to the past is a fascinating idea. Any thoughts there? 
so you know to unpack that before I just dive right in. So Clausewitz and others have commented, you know, war and warfare have an enduring nature. So there's strategic principles that we see for millennia, you know, and so we have to acknowledge that. But, you know, each domain of warfare and throughout time will have a changing character. So conflict and competition in the space domain will have a different character than the maritime, air, and land and sea. So that's important to know. But going back to that enduring nature, there is an enduring nature to irregular warfare. And fundamentally, irregular warfare is warfare. So that's an important that you can draw upon that historical experience. But so I don't put uh, the listeners to sleep to answer the question. There are seminal works. I would say uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War has a lot of irregular uh, elements. We have B.H. Littleheart, uh, who was a British... Uh, scholar that wrote on the indirect approach. So achieve, he was a, writing to a counter to Clausewitz on major force on force, trying to achieve your objectives using something outside of the military. We have Mao Zedong, probably one of the greatest strategic thinkers on insurgencies and you know, starting off from a position of weakness, how do you achieve your goals using time as a weapon, a protracted strategy, piling up of little successes over time that can uh, reach a strategic effect. Trickneer, David Kalula, you know, were um, wrote in the 50s and the 60s about irregular warfare. So we can rediscover a lot of that. There were works, uh, Charles Caldwell in 1898, I believe it was, wrote a Small Wars uh, book. So I try to draw upon that too. You know, we, you know, Small Wars, what is that? Well, again, that's below the threshold of these major force on force. So there's a lot of stuff out there. And you know, sometimes, especially when it comes to discussing space, we think, well, the technology is new. This is new and different. Well, let's start with what history has already taught us so we don't have to relearn lessons unnecessarily. And uh, we don't want to expend blood and treasure in conflict if we don't need to. If we can actually crack a book open, hey, let's start off with what we know. We know, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So let's start off with that rhyming aspect and understand competition and conflict in the space domain in a historical context. I'm curious what you hope people will get out of the book, especially for maybe people like myself who are kind of maybe outside the the domain of people who might be reading about warfare in space. So I, I want folks to take away, you know, that... You know, we can, again, look to history. You know, we do have geopolitical concerns here on the Earth. We, you know, we have our problems with the U.S. and its rivals on Earth. How does that play out in space? I think that's something that we need to think about now in peacetime. You know, whenever I write about space warfare or regular warfare in space, you know, some people say, oh, maybe he's just a warmonger. No, exactly the opposite. So I, I wanted us to have a discussion now. I want the U.S. to have a discussion with its allies and partners today on, on what we agree on is acceptable behavior, especially when we see with commercial companies, is it okay to go after the commercial companies of your, your rivals or your adversary? That's, a, that's open for debate. So I want to try to promote peace and stability to, uh, one, avoid miscalculation and uncertainty and uh, have a peaceful and sustainable space domain is, is my hope. I do reference a lot of, um, I can, you know, my degree was in a research PhD and I wrote on space warfare. So a lot of footnotes, I say a space strategist is someone who quotes dead people. 
Not all the time in this book, but I quote a lot of dead people, okay? But that's important just to give <laughs> give a historical context to what, what we're trying to say. Again, a lot of our, from a strategic sense, a lot of the questions we're asking today are not new. So let's see what those answers are maybe in other domains, other times and periods, and what that teaches us uh, as we consider today's events. That's it for T-Minus Deep Space for October 7th, 2023. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was produced by Alice Caruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixthSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, visit SixthSense.com. <laughs>